And as we're going forward in the book of Judges, we are on the latter end of the chronological timeline of Judges. It's about a three, 400 year period there from about 1500 BC to about 1100 BC. And it's from the time they came into the land under Joshua before the time of the kings with starting with Saul and then David and all the subsequent kings that go for about 500 plus years. So it's the time of Judges. And we've seen so far with these Judges that some are more significant than others. We've seen some where we get great details about them, chapters, and some we get a mention with nothing, with no information other than how long they were influential. So they weren't kings, but they were leaders, and they were there to guide God's people in the promised land, to guide God's people there in the promised land as they just kept going through the cycle of turning against the Lord, worshiping idols, God giving them over to being chastened by foreigners in the land and then them crying out and God give them a deliverer and many of these deliverers were the judges so with that in mind we move to Jephthah tonight and so we left off with that the people had just fully repented before the Lord they put away their idols they turned to the Lord it was a time of revival it was a, it was a sweet time for them during this overall dark time in their history but it was a good time and God did a great work. We actually studied that in detail topically on Saturday night. And then we come to chapter 11, and we get a, a new hero in Israel, Jephthah. So we read this. Now, Jephthah the Gilead was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot or a prostitute. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house. You are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. And it came to pass after a time that the people of Amnon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Amnon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we've turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went to, with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all this, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So this is our introduction to Jephthah. We're going to get him for this chapter with some other events relating to him. So this is Jephthah and his relationship with his family. And his community. We're going to get his relationship with the enemies of God. We're going to get his relationship with his daughter as well. And interesting diversities in these things. But Jephthah, we get this unique detail. His mom was a harlot. So that's going to be something that's going to work against you. And life's hard enough with a healthy family. It's, it's that much more difficult with an unhealthy family. And this just reminds us, looking at Jephthah, that just to be gracious with people and realize that everyone has a story. You know, particularly young people, like young people that are often troubled in juvenile hall and these sorts of things, there's usually background to those things. Not always, but usually there is. And if you come from a healthy home, good for you. But a lot of people don't. And a lot of people have to overcome things coming from dysfunctional homes in the broad scope of what that word can mean. 
And certainly in ministry for 33 years, I've been pulled into situations where I've seen horrible things that children have been exposed to, terrible strife in their families, divorces, very ugly divorces, child custody battles that are very difficult. And children do get stumbled by their parents, and they are affected by their parents for better or for worse. But in Jeff Scott's case, he actually... God used it for good because we're going to see later on the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So whatever he went through in his childhood, later on it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So he definitely had a destiny for greatness with the Lord, for sure. And so here he is, and he grows up in this house, and he's the son of the dad but through another woman. And if you've ever been involved with trusts and estates and wills and things like that, I mean, this is the stuff that this, this is where lawyers make their money, this kind of stuff right here. Probate court, stuff like that. This is a, if you know, you know. If you don't, you might someday, and hopefully you don't. But, like, this is where it gets pretty dicey because the earth is the Lord's, everything in it. When you step into eternity, everything gets left behind. We've been clearing up something from my mom's estate two years later, city of San Diego. We had to do some stuff, and we get these benefits by being first generation linked to my mom, a tax break, but he had to pay, leave it to government, you have to pay the tax, even though you don't owe it, and you prove to him you don't owe it, but you have to pay it, and then ask for it back during COVID. So you can, like, it's, it's just jumping through this hoop, but in Jennifer's dealing with the city of San Diego, because she's the trustee of my mom's stuff, <laughs> the lady she's been doing said, hey, this is nothing, we had someone that left 10 houses with the same situation, that we're trying to resolve with all these family members. We all step into eternity, and some people leave debt, some people break even, and some people leave a lot of wealth behind. And that's just, that's the way it is. And there's an inheritance. And here there's an inheritance. And where there's wealth and money, human beings will usually fight over it. People who trust in the Lord know that the Lord is their provider. People who don't, they're their own provider. Money brings out the best in people, and money brings out the worst in people. Usually the worst, not the best. But for what it's worth, we want it to bring out the best in us, in you, in me, and this church. We want money to bring out the best in us, not the worst. But in this case, they they drive Jeff out. They're like, dude, your mom's a harlot. Your mom's a prostitute. Get out of here. And so he fled. But things would have been against him. He would have been picked on his whole life. He would have been bullied, essentially. And as the story goes forward, he's a bad dude. Like, he's, he's like, those things work together for good in his life. However it played out, you'll see as we go forward that he's not afraid of confronting people. He's not afraid of fighting. He's not afraid of conflict. And he's not afraid to deal with things. He is basically a bad dude. And God puts his spirit on him for a very deliberate purpose. He is a judge in the book of Judges. That's pretty rad. Just shows how Jesus, you know, Rahab, all the people in Jesus' genealogy, all the different people you see in the Bible that God uses. And here's Jephthah. It's like, man, this guy got driven from his family. There's no wealth for you. All this land belongs to us. You don't get any of it. So he becomes a raider. He becomes basically a criminal because he's cut off from the family wealth and even having the opportunity to earn income in an agri-society with that wealth, that land. It's always about the land, too, by the way. So anyways, what I like here is they come for him, and he says, well, now, 
hang on here. <laughs> you just drove me away. You want me to come back now? And, you know, he's big enough where he lets it go and he comes back. I'm sure you caught that. Now, he holds him accountable. Like, if I'm coming back, I'm going to be the head here. If I'm going to risk my life for you people, you're not going to do the bait and switch on me. So here before the Lord, because it says, now therefore he spoke these words, he spoke all this word before the Lord. So he made a covenant with the Lord and the people in this situation. He brought the Lord in the equation when he accepted the job. So he was, think about it this way, he was dishonorably fired from the family business and driven off. And now they want him to come back and save the family business. And he's like, well, before I do, we have a contractual agreement with Jehovah and Right here at Mizpah, we're all making this deal. This is the open-ended contract. He does not live a long life, by the way. Nor are we ever guaranteed anyone in this room is going to live any longer than today, right now, this moment. But he agrees to it. And it's pretty big on his part because he's like, you know what, I'll let that go. I'll let that go. And you know when there's time for conflict, you need someone who's not afraid of it. And his reputation was, no, this guy, he'll, he's a scrapper. He's, he's not afraid of these people. Now, what's interesting to me, a little application here, is the, is the people who drove him out of his family. In that verse early on, verse 1, it says, you shall have no, verse 2, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house. And this is why. And then he went from no inheritance, being told he had no inheritance, to what? He's going to be everyone's boss. Which brings up a key thought to us. Never underestimate what God is doing in someone else's life. Do not throw people under the bus. It is much better to build bridges in a network of friends and allies than to burn bridges and make adversaries. Now, there are times, I would say I never burn a bridge. I just might close the gate to the bridge. Like, this gate's closed. I'm not burning it, but this gate's closed. Like, if I'm Jerusalem and you come into Jerusalem and you burn the city, I keep you out of the city until something changes, like I did with my sister for almost a decade. But I think, like, how many times people throw other people under the bus? Where we, without, we just go, I'm over it. I'm over it. Like, it's what I did to my sister in some ways, really. But it's like, we, we just get, we can put boundaries on people, but we want to be careful that we, and we've been talking about this in recent, last couple of years. We're not judge and jury. When we did the Sermon on the Mount, Condemn not lest you be condemned. So we're called to discern, but we're never called to put the final nail in a coffin on someone. Their value as a human being, their potential as a human being, and what God might want to do with them as a human being. So we have to be careful because we do have opinions. Obviously, we have opinions. In every society, there's hostility in any society at any given time in the human experience. And people love to formulate opinions about other people, how they act, how they talk, how they look, whatever they do. And, and people have opinions, and really, remember, our opinions don't really matter. Let God be true and every man a liar. But what I see here is, it's kind of like the whole thing about don't cut down the fruit trees when you besiege a city, because you might want to pick those fruit, the fruit from those trees while you're besieging the city. Don't cut, don't cut down a fruit tree that you can benefit with the fruit from later on. We saw that in the law. And in the same principle, these people of the city by their greed and their selfishness and covetousness, they threw Jephthah under the bus and put him in a bad way. And then they had to humble themselves and abase themselves and ask him to come back and rescue them. And Jephthah is a big enough person to not hold it against him and let it go. So it actually worked out 
well for everybody because Jephthah, like Joseph in the book of Genesis, is willing to let it go and forgive. But man, think of the humble pie these people had from the family. Think back to the family meeting when the lawyer was there and they said, get out of here. There's nothing for you in this trust, in this estate. And now they go back and find him like, hey, you know, that was just a little misunderstanding. Oh, I noticed you didn't bring your lawyer this time with you. Yeah, yeah, we don't want lawyers. We can just talk family here. You know, we're family. See how that works? That's what happened here. It's, it's a word to us. Do not throw people under the bus. Build friendships. Build networks, especially in the body of Christ. And be a blessing to others so they can be a blessing to you. You don't know. And I've been saying this about getting older. Because, of course, I go to assisted living all the time. I get my dad, pick him up. I see other people there. I've seen people in memory care when my father-in-law was there a year ago. I've been to all these different facilities because my father-in-law was in different facilities. And, and it's really dawned on me, like, you know, when you visit people that are like that. So like Jesus said, when you visit someone in jail or you visit me, you're homeless, all this kind of stuff, that it's, it's good for you. Because Jesus said, when you did to the least of them, you did to me, right? You all know that from Matthew 25. Well, I've been thinking about when you visit the elderly. When you visit the elderly who are in assisted living or memory care and things like that, you're actually sowing a good seed for something that can come back to you later on. Now, I don't visit my dad and take care of my dad because I'm hoping Luke will take care of me the same way if I'm 91. But that's not a bad, bad thing to have in the, in the back pocket. Because a lot of people end up in this situation where they're not taken care of. And people don't come get them and take them to the beach and drive them by the ocean and give them a shave and fresh homemade cookies and stuff like that. But I've had this thought the last couple of years. I, if you think about being 90 and not able to take care of yourself, some 90-year-olds can, so let's not say that's completely the case, but let's just say you're 90. You might not have children. You might have adult children to take care of you. They might not be willing to take care of you. They might not even care about you. They might actually throw you under the bus when you're 90. That's very common, so that shouldn't surprise us. So I've been thinking, like, you just never know where the help's going to come. You just never know who's going to help you. You know, I was helping this kid from Vero Beach the, who came out for nationals at Huntington Beach this week. And I was down there. He's a little kid. He's stoked. He's fired up. And he's at the National Surfing Championships. He's from Vero Beach. He's part of the factory youth group at Nate's, you know, my son-in-law's youth group. So he's a kid. He's a surfer. He's a full-on grom. He's like, he's a frothing grom, if you know what I mean. And so, anyways, we're down there. And I just thought, like, I may end up in Vero Beach when I'm older. And this kid may be the kid that comes to visit me when I'm in the granny flat the ADU, additional dwelling unit, or an assisted living, or even memory care. I thought, this kid might actually come visit me if I'm in my 90s, because the brands all live in their 90s. Actually, their hundreds. And, and this kid may actually be visiting me when I'm in my 90s. I might even know who he is, but he'll remember the kindness I showed him in 2021 when he was 13 and had a dream. Don't throw Jephthah under the bus. Don't throw people under the bus. To have friends, one must be friendly. Make friendships. In a world filled with division right now, there's divisions that are necessary and there's divisions that are not. Make sure the divisions we have are the necessary ones between light and darkness, and make sure when they're not, you're not making division where there can be unity and friendship. You just never know. It's much better to build a network of friends than to throw people under the bus. Now, we read on. And Jesus is a friend at all times. There's a friend who sticks closer to a brother. It's Jesus. I want to be ministering to Jephthah. I don't want to be throwing him under the bus. 
Verse 12. Now, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. That's modern Jordan. He says, now, what do you have against me? That you've come to fight against me in my land. <laughs> Look at that sentence. What do you got against me? You're going to fight against me in my land. I just love that. It's like, those are strong words. What do you got against me? Did you come to fight against me in my land? <laughs> Remember he got expelled from the inheritance? And now he's like, he's like, he's like hey, what? Okay, Ammon, buddy. What do you got against me? You got against me in my land. You come to fight against me in my land. So he wants to talk it through. He's coming to the marketplace of thought. Let's talk this out here before we all kill each other. Let's, let's figure out what's going on here. And the king of the people of Ammon answered in messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. Hmm. Verse 14, so Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed, and in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And then they went along to the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all of his people together and camped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all of his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chamosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon, its villages, and Arar, and its villages, and the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you've wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent to him. Look at Jephthah, a little Bible study guy. He was paying attention at Shabbat in the synagogue. Right. He, he's like, what? Like, you know, he has, he's a raider. He's a warrior. He's been fighting his whole life. He's had to fight his own brothers. He definitely knows how to fight the enemies of Israel. And like, he's, it's kind of like, you know, Kung Fu master saying like, no, you don't, you don't want any of this. You guys should just walk away right now. Just walk away right now. God gave us this land. And if you think Chamosh, your God's greater than our God, then see what Chamosh gives you. Just beat it. Get out of here for your own good. God gave us this land. He's, 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 of course, quoting the scriptures from the book of Numbers. We studied this in the last year. He's just laying out the whole Jewish history, how they got it. God gave it to him. And he's saying, the Lord gave us this. The Lord gave us this. And we're going to take everything the Lord gives us, which, by the way, is a pretty good verse, too. If the Lord's given you something, take it. If he's offering something to you, drop what's in your hands and grab what he's given you because it's better. 
He's not going to come short. Like, we don't want to come short with what the Lord's given us. And he says, hey, if the Lord's given it to us, we're taking it. And we took it. He gave it to us. We took it. And you're definitely not getting it. So this conversation's over. You've had 300 years to reclaim this land. It's not your land. See what Chamosh has for you, huh? Because we have the Lord. It's kind of like with David 150 years later. Well, actually, about 100 years later. You come at me in the name of your gods, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. It's not me you're fighting. You're fighting the Lord. See, Jephthah was very smart here. He made this not a battle between Jephthah, the raider judge of Israel, against the Ammonites. He made it a battle between Jehovah and Chemish. Isn't that really what our battles are? The battle belongs to the Lord. It's not a battle between ideologies, per se, although it is. All the cultural battles in any generation, in any society, are spiritual battles between the kingdom of God and light and the kingdom of darkness and the demonic entities. It's kind of like Elijah when he said, hey, if Baal's God, prophets of Baal, 400 of you, let's see, what, maybe he's taking a nap or he's going to the bathroom. Call down fire from heaven. But if the Lord's God, then serve him. How long will you waver between two opinions? He said to the people of God. And God brought down the fire that licked up the water. That story there from Kings. So there's a good application here. The battle is the Lord's. Make sure that we don't make the battle ours. Make sure we let the Lord fight our battles. Make sure we put scripture over our position of morality and high ground. The church holds the high ground because we bow the knee to the king. We don't need to defend the king. We don't need to stick up for the king. The king knows how to do what he's doing. A billion galaxies and King Jesus rules over all of them. So, like we've been talking about, the Bible tells the church to stand. To stand and represent. To stand and confess the good confession. To be the pillar of truth. That's our place. And we, 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 we can't get pulled, the church can't get pulled into cultural battles where we're moved from it being the Lord's battle with spiritual weapons to being man's battle with fleshly weapons. It's a dangerous place to be. We fight our battles on our knees in prayer with truth, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, right? So I just love how Jephthah just said, he didn't say, look, man, you see, remember what Gideon did, you people, two generations ago? He didn't say that. He's like, hey, God gave us this. See what Shameth gives you. Now, now beat it. Huh? Like I just told someone today, that there's people that send me stuff all the time. People send me stuff all the time. Like, they want to see what I think. I'm like, what do you want me to say? These people are clueless, they're delusional, and they're demonic. They're not worth my time or yours. What are you going to do? The vast majority of human beings don't even, like we talked about, the wide and broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and many go thereby. They're not even alive. They're just existing. We're told the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We're told he's taking them captive to do his will. So I would be surprised that people can't think straight or be rational with common sense. And get worked up in a frenzy and, and just be out of their minds and say things that make just are absolutely insanity before God and even common sense, let alone critical thinking. You just can't let it upset you. What are you going to do with the king of Ammon? 
dude, God give us this. You see what Chambers does for you. Let the Lord fight our battles. He does a much better job than us. But there's going to be a battle, so we read on verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Well, that's a really strange and hasty vow. But at any rate, the Spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah, and he's asking the Lord for help, and he's making a vow to the Lord. So that all seems good. Verse 32. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. See, the battle is the Lord's. We need to be reminded the battle is the Lord's. Whatever battle personally you're fighting or whatever comes against the church around the world right now, the battle is the Lord's. If there's battles within countries between people and political parties, the battle is the politicians. But the battle is against the church, the gospel, and the word of God, then the battle's the Lord's. So just stay on the holy ground where the battle's the Lord's. And let them fight that. If two different people groups want to fight each other in Paris, that's their business. If two different people groups with ideologies want to fight each other in Vietnam or China or whatever, that's their business. But the church is in China and the church is in Paris. <laughs> The church just needs to be the church and hold the holy ground. Ours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Ours is the everlasting gospel. Ours is the word of God. And ours is the declaration of the kingdom. And the church is going to be here. All these people come and go. All these kings of Ammon, they're going to come and go. They come and go in every generation. The church is going to be here. WG, don't forget that Jesus Christ loves his church and he's Lord of his church. And the church of Jesus Christ is going to be here until he sounds that trumpet. And if he's not coming for another 500 years, believe me, in the year 20,500, 2,500, Jesus is going to be on the throne and the church is going to be here. There'll be human beings saved by being born again by the Spirit of God. And they'll be preaching the gospel, they'll be teaching the word of God, and they'll be singing praise to his name. So, it's... It's there. The Lord delivers them into his hands. And it says in verse 33, and he defeated them from Arar as far as Minneth, 20 cities, and to Abel-Kirim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Man, the people of Ammon, they should have just, I don't know. <laughs> well, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And we'll get more of that in the next chapter. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass, when he saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You're among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, Look what she says. My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the people of Ammon. She loved her daddy, didn't she? She didn't want to lose her life for her dad to be avenged from all the wrong that ever happened to him growing up as the son of a harlot. Verse 37. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Uh, let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and be well my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends, be well her virginity on the mountains. 
And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which she had vowed she knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went out four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileite. So an unusual passage. There's really only three things that can be said here. <clears throat> so first of all, one position is Jephthah actually sacrificed a human sacrifice of his daughter. I don't believe that, although I don't rule it out. I don't rule anything out with people. People do stupid things, right? Like, people do things. When people get religious, they do things where you just, like, you just, but I don't, I don't think that's the case here. Because Jephthah, the Spirit of the Lord has been upon Jephthah. He made a vow to the Lord. Jephthah is pretty, he's good with the Lord. But it is possible that he made a human sacrifice of his daughter. But if that is the case, there's no way God would honor that ever before that. Because God is profoundly and radically against human sacrifice. So, if that were the case, we have to ask ourselves, would God prefer that he be released from his vow and his daughter lives or follow through with his vow and kill his daughter? God's not tyrannical. And to think that God would actually prefer that he fulfill his vow as opposed to doing what's just the heart of God would be ludicrous. So if Jephthah followed through with this and did this, that could have never been the heart of God and would have just been such a tragedy beyond measure. It's such a blemish on Israel. I just don't think that's the case. Now, the second possibility of this is that, in fact, what he did do is consecrate her virginity her whole life, which I believe the text implies because she bewailed her virginity. She never knew a man intimately. And it says, and she knew no man intimately. That's the result of her two months that she knew no man. And if you study history, particularly European history, this was a favorite of the kings. The unwanted daughter, the mistress or whatever, when one prince won the battle of another prince to come to power, the overturning of a king in Prussia, Poland, Sweden, whatever. There's always women that were beautiful, that were heirs to the throne in various ways, and the first thing the opposing party would do in the kingdom of power is they put them in a convent. They make a nun of them. The Russians are particularly good at this one. They put them in a convent to be a nun, whether it's the Greek Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church, or Catholic and a nun. Very, very common. If you study European history, women were sent to convents all the time to never be with a man, or had they been with a man, but a powerful man, and rather than being executed, off to the convent you go. Set aside for virginity because you cannot have children because your son would be an heir to the throne a second generation. See how that would work? Like, you know, if you have the link. Remember, like, so Peter the Great, when he died, he had 15 children. Only two made it to adulthood. Two daughters. The one daughter became um, like a, she became a queen eventually after uh, Peter the Great's wife passed away. But her son was a knucklehead. Total knucklehead. And, but he's the grandson of Peter the Great, so he was the heir and that's when they brought in Catherine, the Prussian princess. Well, she wasn't really the princess, but she's like a baroness. So they brought her in, and Catherine married him, and she was much more adept to run the country than him. Then this conspiracy happened where he was killed by these other people, and she became queen. Thus, you have Catherine the Great. The Prussian woman became Catherine the Great, second greatest monarch ever in the history of Russia. But it's the grandson. It's the link. So... What they would do is, all these European kings, is there a woman who can birth a prince even two generations, three generations away when the power is on the other side of the family tree? Follow me here. 
They take this girl and they put her in a convent. That's what they do. And she never has sexual intimacy with a man. I think that's what happened here. I think that's the vow. I think that's what happened. That she just said, I'm never going to know a man intimately. And that, that's probably what happened. Anything other than that happened, who knows? We're not told. It, but you know, the last thing it says about her is that she knew no man. And the women would go out every year for four days to lament her not ever being with a man, which kind of makes sense as well. Like, oh, you know, like, then again, if you picked the wrong man, you'd probably be happy that you wish you would have been with a man. Let the reader understand. Verse 12, chapter 12. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, so this story is going on, crossed over Zephon, said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Wait, aren't these the same guys that came out against Gideon? <laughs> these are the same guys. These are like the sons and grandsons that threatened Gideon. Remember what Gideon did? like, oh, what's the threshing of this compared to that? You guys, like, man, you guys... What I did is nothing. You guys are the superstars, man. You, what you're doing, I'm nothing compared to you. Gideon appeased them. He appeased their egos and let them be the heroes. Get the front page of this picture on the sports page. He let them be the heroes. And Jephthah's not like that. <laughs> Jephthah's not Gideon. Gideon's like, hey, I don't want any trouble. Sure, you guys did it. Like, what am I compared to you? You guys are superstars. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm vanilla. I'm average. Like, oh, we're going to burn your house down when you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, my people and I were in a great struggle with people of Ammon, and when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands, and I crossed over against people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hands. Why then have you come out to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites, among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraim, Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they'd say to him, then say, Sheboleth. And he would say, Sheboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. Now we'll say it again. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. <laughs> like, this isn't, your, this isn't your dad's judge you're dealing with here, Gideon. This is your judge. This guy's a bad dude. His mom was a harlot. He was cast out of the beating with the lawyer for the family estate. This guy just wiped out the Ammonites. And you're going to come give him grief and threaten to burn down his house? Again, some people don't get it, and they're never going to get it. And you can't help them. Some people don't get it, but will get it, and you can't help them. Some people get it, and they need to be patient with those who don't. These people, they don't get it. And as long as they're not in our world, then just let it be. But if they come to threaten to burn your house down, then you might have to help them get it. That can mean different things for different people at different times. But some people just don't get it. And people who live by the sword, die by the sword. 
You want to come out and play bully? You, you want to come out and play bully? Are we doing this again? A, a generation later? You want to play bully? You want to play tough guy? Man, this is Jephthah, the son of a harlot. His mom was a prostitute. Do you even know what men did to him when he was growing up? He's a bad dude. You guys should have got the scattering report on this guy. Why are you doing this? Bad decision. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom. They shall inherit the earth. Much better to be a peacemaker. And give Jephthah credit, because he really, he, he, like, he turned the other cheek both times. Like, it's like, on verbal threats. Like, hey, I'm only going to tell you once. Don't mess with me. My space don't come in this space. This is the space God gave me. You come in this space, I'm going to crack you. That's what happened. But how smart is Jeff, though? He says, hey, listen, we all know these Ephraimites can't say, they can't say they're L's. Or they can't, they, they just, you know, like, it's so funny, like, when I was learning Spanish, I could not say mujer. I had the hardest time with the word for woman in Spanish. Like, I'd be like, Mucha. like, it's like, oh, gringo, Joey, stop, please stop. You're embarrassing yourself. Like, I still don't say it right, but See, in our own language, we could recognize that someone's from New England, England or Ireland, or Arkansas, Southern California, or Texas, all speaking English. The, the accents, the slangs, the dialect. Same in Spanish. You're trying to learn Spanish, you think everyone that speaks Spanish sounds the same. Cuban Spanish is a lot different than Chilean Spanish, which is a lot different than Spa Spain Spanish. And if you just take Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese is profoundly different than Portuguese Portuguese. So... Say, Shibboleth. <laughs> it's a brutal world out there. We know it. Verse 8. After him, Ibzan at Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage. He brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel 10 years. And Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hiliel, the uh, Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then uh, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perthite died and was buried in Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. So here's three king or three judges, Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. Again, these are insignificant ones. Uh, we see with Ibzon that he, he, he gave away his daughters in marriage and brought in daughters to marry his son. So he's definitely a monarch kind of guy. Because again, this is what monarchs do. I mean, like Queen Victoria, she's Prussian to begin with, German, but she's no, famous for being, you know, Queen Victoria, the Victorian era of England. But her offspring went all over Europe. She built this whole network, Germany, all that. When, when Germany and England went to war in World War I, it, the monarchs were all, they're all first cousins. Russia was first cousin. The Tsar Nicholas was first cousin with the, the German Kaiser. And, I mean, it's, it's because they're all connected. And that's what they did. They built a network through monarchs to strengthen their stuff. So we give you our daughters and for your sons, and we strengthen alliances, and you give vice versa. This is the way of kings. And that's what this one judge did. He reigned seven years. The other one reigned 10. Didn't say anything. The other one had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, so he had a lot of offspring. And when he came to become a judge, obviously he became a, 
the judge, after all this family was going on, they were in the family business together, and that was it. So now the stage is set for Samson. We'll get to that when we get together next week. We're all set up for Samson. So Samson is going to be our last judge. And the life of Samson is fascinating. It's very interesting, like how God set him aside before he was born, his parents, his choice in women, the consequences, and the legacy of his life. So Samson is around the corner, and we'll just hold off for tonight. We'll, we'll, we'll come, we'll look at Samson going forward next week. So Jephthah is our main guy for tonight then. He was our, our, our guy. Again, we saw that he lived six, he judged six years and died. He lived six years as the judge. But we'll just close with this thought on him. He, he was courageous. He really was. And sometimes you need a scrapper. Sometimes you just need a scrapper. You need people. Not everyone's called to confront a situation. Not everyone's called to stand up to the bully and punch him back. Not everyone's called to go, go at it. But some people are. And all that we've been through in the last two years, the legal attacks on the church, on private ownership of businesses and all these things, they've been brutal. And we have watched story, the storyline go from three weeks to beat the curve to take this or you lose everything you got. And it's been tricky. And we're all just trying to navigate things as best we can. So I will just say this what this whole message was about. Let the Lord fight our battles. Let the Lord fight your battles. What are they are? If it's related to cultural things or personal things, let the Lord fight your battles. Let him fight your battles. We belong to the Lord. And if he says, you need to step out in faith and you need to challenge this, you need to fight this way, then do that. If he says, let it go, I've got something better for you, then do that. I don't feel called to fight Gavin Newsom over the rights of the church. There are other people who do feel called to fight the governor over the rights of the church. I need to stay in my lane and do what I'm called to do. You need to stay in your lane and do what you're called to do. That's where we're in God's will. That's where he's fighting it. I don't, I, I've never felt led like I need to do this, I need to do that. I, listen, I felt led we need to pray and we know where we stand. And I, I want to I be for people that are deceived and demonically deceived. But we're called to pray for, pray for our spiritual leaders. There'll be a day when he might even know who he is. Remember Ronald Reagan when he was in his 90s? He didn't even know who he was. Ronald Reagan, when he was in his early 90s, did not know that he had been the president of the United States and stood down the Soviet Union and won. So I, I, I don't want to have anything against Gavin Newsom or our president or future presidents and future governors. I just mentioned by name because we're called to pray for these people. Now, there are people who are fighting them, and they're fighting the laws that they're making up as they go along. And that's their business. That's how they feel led to do all this. I'm sure they're praying and they're fighting. That's their business. You know, in hockey, Wayne Gretzky scores better when he's got an enforcer on the ice. And if you know in hockey, you have an enforcer. That's someone that just kind of, they make sure you don't mess with your stars in hockey. They're big guys, and they, they, you know, David, 
David had his enforcers. We just need to understand with Jephthah, he was a fighter, and he was called to be a fighter. And he was a very important person to fight important battles at a time when the nation needed a fighter. And I thank God for fighters. I just want to make sure when you and I are fighting somebody, we know it's the Lord's battle. He's got a spirit on us, and he's called us to do it.